And I hope you have your Bible with you. We're going to turn to that now in uh, Philippians chapter 1. And you have the page Bible there in front of you. Philippians chapter 1 and verse uh, 12 to 30. Here are Paul's personal disappointment, a bit like ours, as Neil was saying. And yet, in God's providence, it actually advanced the cause of the gospel. And there are parallels here that we should look for uh, as um, we read this. And bear in mind, this series uh, was started in uh, mid-July, um, as we planned for the autumn. And here we are reading this, and how pertinent and relevant it is for us um, today as a church. So we begin at verse 12. <clears throat> now I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everybody else that I am in chains for Christ. Because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so in love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition not sincerely, supposing they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice. For I know that through your prayers... And the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me, will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ may be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. And yet, what shall I choose? I do not know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your joy in Christ Jesus will overflow on account of me, whatever happens. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you, or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. 
For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him. Since you are going through the same struggle, you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. That's Paul being very personal there. And in this open letter to the church, it's many things to say to us. The heading that we have today is Joy Through Fear. And uh, we are continuing in this uh, series that will lead us up to the second Sunday in Advent. So we're in this book for quite a while now. I'm just trying to get a feel of the book and get into it and, and live through it. And I'm sure it has a timely message for us. It, if you like, it reads like a gem that has been hewn from uh, the dark recesses of the earth. And now you see the vista of, of this letter as it has come to this church, which became, of course, the gateway into Europe and subsequently the gospel coming to our country. And each chapter reveals a different facet of joy. We'll look at these very quickly so that you, you'll, you'll have a review of this. First of all, chapter 1, we learn the joy of living. And we saw that in verse 12. Sometimes we might feel we're just existing with all the pressures on us. He says now, verse 12, I want you to know, brothers... What has happened to me has really served to advance the cause of the gospel. What a terrible setback. No, on the contrary. Difficult circumstances come to us. You may well be living through one now. And yet it should not impede the joy of living out uh, what it is to be a, a Christian. And then in chapter 2 is the joy of serving you couldn't get a, 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 a better example of this uh, in verses, chapter 2, verses 3 to 5. It, it says what, that we need godly attitudes. Do, not, do nothing out of selfish ambition and vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. That's a big ask. It is. And we're not at our best in trying to respond to that. The joy of serving. And if you know, if you serve, someone's going to take you for granted. You're going to be vulnerable. That doesn't mean you should be a doormat. But when you serve, people are going to think you're a soft touch. And chapter 3, the, the, the joy of sharing. What we have, we acknowledge, is God's goodness to us. And we want to share that. So in chapter 3 uh, and verse uh, 12 to 14... Paul is saying, uh, here he is, he, in many ways he's a spiritual giant as we read in the Bible. And yet, what does he say? Chapter 3, verse 12, not that I've already obtained all this, or I've already been made fully mature, perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ took hold of me. It's the joy of sharing, perhaps sharing our weakness. Immediately we think the joy of sharing, uh, it's my bank balance. No, it's me, myself, my home, all that I have. And uh, chapter 4 leads us on to, to the joy of, of resting. Now, of course, resting isn't uh, rest from inactivity. But something lacking in, in our culture, for sure. Um, uh, godliness with contentment. So, activity continues w alongside rest. And, of course, in chapter 4 and uh, verse uh, 10... I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you've renewed your concern for me. And so on. This whole idea. And Paul says, yes, I am grateful to you for your tangible giving. Probably finance, I suspect. But in verse 11 he says this. 
I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I've learned to be content whatever the circumstance. And in the rhythm of life, with all the issue about pensions and cutbacks and all of that, what a, what a word for us today uh, um, in verse 12. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. It's a lovely balance there, isn't there, in terms of the rhythm of life. And if we were to link, so those, uh, that's an interesting summary, if you like, seeing as we're staying in this book for such a long time, and I hope it's helpful. But you see, embedded in these four facets of joy, if we're holding them up like a diamond and, and you see it from different angles, so we could see four parallel principles. Just stay with me on this and then we get into the book uh, quickly. Four lasting principles for us to remember. The first is this, that this book I think is given to us for living joy, living joy. And in order for me to, to live out this joy, I need mentors. It is, it, is, it is a great thing, isn't it, to have people in our lives who have been an influence for good. We need those. Often parents would want to be. Well, of course, in here, chapter 1, verse uh, 21, is, 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 well, it's a very humbling verse. I, you, you shouldn't read that without fear and trembling. But is it true? For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Is a great mentor. Our lovely, blessed Lord Jesus who's gone before. And it should take the sting out of grieving. And as Christian people, for sure, we grieve but not as those who have no hope and we should not be overbearing about it. And secondly, for serving with joy, I need a right attitude. My attitude is the most powerful things in my life. And I can easily develop a negative one. Well, here is a, a great example for us in the Lord Jesus. And so, chapter 2, verse 5, your attitude should be the same as him. It would be a lot easier to live with if it was. And the third principle is this. If the, if for, uh, the second is for serving with joy, for living with joy. The third is for sharing with joy. I need a goal that says to me, what, I'm giving, what I've given today in the offering, there are eternal issues. And I do believe that. Do I? And then fourthly, this whole idea of resting. <coughs> resting in joy. So much of our lives are shot through with anxiety. And if we were to stand back on our lives and think how blessed we are, it should be a challenge to us to be people whose lives are characterized by not complacency, but contentment. I need God's peace. And so, there you have it there, that chapter 4, verse 6. So if you like, that's the, that's the big picture. And, and some of those things would be a real blessing to us if we were to really apply them and work them through in our homes and in our lives. So let's look then at these um, Two 
main points that we have this morning. Um, the first, uh, you, you, we'll, join, we'll sit with Paul for a moment, he's thinking of the past. We often do that, don't we? Thinking about the past. And then the second point of the sermon is looking to the future. Looking to the future. How often do people say to you, well, I don't have a crystal ball. Indeed you don't. But you have a saviour, the Lord Jesus. So these two things we're going to look at. There's the big picture. Now this. Think about the past for a moment. Verses 12 to 18. What Paul is really saying here is this, that his trials, this terrible setback, this turn of events which he really didn't expect and which seems to be a denial of all his prayers and all his plans for sure, that these setbacks are actually not an end in themselves, but a preparation for the future and future joy. The Lord Jesus, when he was talking to his disciples who felt like this, t turn just to uh, John chapter 60, just to see this one um, cross-reference here. Jesus is speaking about his impending death and he's going to institute the supper, which we're going to share in a moment. And he's talking to them. And he's trying to connect with them and engage with them. And, and let's, let's join them for a moment. And in John chapter 16 and uh, taking up verse 21 or verse 20, I tell you the truth, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will be turned to joy. And this, of course, is the Philippians resonates with that. And then a wonderful illustration by the Lord Jesus. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of a joy that a child is born into the world. So with you. Make the connection. So with you. I don't think it's that difficult, is it? Now is your time of grief. But I will see you again. And you will rejoice. And no one will take away your joy. And so on. And it's the same theme. Exactly the same. Preparation for future joy through often the travail of personal anguish. So what's the picture here? The picture is Paul chained to a Roman soldier. I don't think they were particularly harsh circumstances, but it's a lack of a loss of freedom, independence, perhaps even for him a loss of dignity, chained all the time. Every six hours, the, 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 the soldier would be, would be off duty or go to something else. Somebody else would come. And you might say, what a terrible scene. Here is the great apostle called to evangelize and a gateway to Europe. And where is he? Incarcerated. What is God doing? Well, what is he doing? Well, of course, the past helps us to answer that question very easily. <laughs> He's preparing for much greater things. But it's a strange way of doing it, you might say. It's a preparation for future joy. So, here's two responses. What would it be? Here you are. Lack of freedom. Lack of dignity. Lack of opportunity. Chained to soldiers. What is it? Isn't it terrible? What? A failure of prayer. God doesn't answer prayer, obviously. Or, what an opportunity. 
here I am, these soldiers, and soldiers are much more in the headline in the news these days, aren't they? Two young soldiers here last Sunday. It's, it's interesting to talk to them. So Paul has a captive, literally, audience. He can't get away from them. They can't get away from him. Which, which way do you take it? How terrible. What an opportunity. So in verses 13 to 14, this is what he says. Or verse 12, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, there you've got the picture now, what has really served to advance the gospel. How strange. As a result, with the changing of the guards every six hours, and with, with, as far as the commentators say, maybe this lasted for about a year and a half, that's a lot of soldiers. It's become known through the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I'm in chains, not as a criminal, but for Christ. He's a different prisoner. You should listen to him. He's got a message. And so he says in verse 14, because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord, the church, that's a generic term for brothers and sisters, uh, have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. The church is strengthened. But what a way to do it. You wouldn't plan that, would you? Now, don't, don't miss the point here because it, it's so important. You see, Paul's chains gave him contact with unbelievers. We've established that. What a wonderful opportunity. Because most Christians seem to live in a bubble. It's almost like bubble Christians, not Bible Christians. We don't engage. We don't connect. Perhaps we like it like that. How, what it would be like if we were in contact with unbelievers all the time, listening to obscenities, one might suspect, and, and coarse conversation. And how difficult is this? Contact with unbelievers. But the, the other side of the coin, to give courage to believers. If God can use Paul there, chained like that, can't he use me here with my freedom? And so verse 14 gives you the answer to that. Yes, discouragement on the one hand spreads like a virus, doesn't it? Attacks our immune system and we're below par. It's a can't-do mentality, a won't-do mentality. Discouragement is like a virus. But, conversely, encouragement spreads like a vision. The one is like a virus that attacks a vision that emboldens, enables us to see a much bigger picture. Bigger picture of what God is doing, if we could but see. Do you see the point? And I hope the application is obvious to you now. And let me personalize it. Put it like this. Whatever your situation, or put it like this. Whatever my chains, what are they? Difficult family relationship, impending hospital visit, f financial stress, uncertainty, difficult colleague at work, concern about children leaving home. Well, whatever my chains, and we have them. For sure we have them. What do you say? 
whatever they are, not to be overly dramatic as Paul shares with us here. They are not outside of God's sovereign purpose. And if we are willing, he can use them. So this great obstacle is a stepping stone to greater things. That's the the application. And we need to take that. And what's the context? We live in a very imperfect world and we're members of a very, this church anyway, can't talk about any other, a very imperfect church. And don't, don't criticize the difference of opinion. As if we all should be of the same mind all the time. What is that about? Disneyland, that is. Plastic people. No, no. Look, read on in that context. It is true, verse 15, that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry. What sort of a church is that? But others, with, with goodwill, the latter do it in love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. You can imagine people say, well, Paul can't be up to much. Look, it's no accident he's there. He's been up to something. People saying things like, that's not very nice, is it? And I, I lined for my own benefit here. You see, yes, 17, the former preached Christ out of selfish ambition and so on. What's Paul say about What's the conclusion? What, how are we going to respond to that? Verse 18 is a lovely question. It's a rhetorical question, I think. He says, but what does it matter? You might say, well, it matters to me if people are saying things about me. And often we say, oh, you see, it's the principle. No, it isn't. It's your pride. That's what it is. What does he say? What does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached, and this, in this I rejoice, and I will rejoice. It it, it should be a no-go area for us to interpret people's motives. We shouldn't do that. You can't interpret mine, and I can't interpret yours. I can't. I shouldn't. I must. Don't go there. Don't. We're often wrong. How often have we really misjudged people? I hope that we would share Paul's consuming passion that Christ was proclaimed And God alone knows people's motives and I leave it with him. So much for the past. Just quickly then, the future. Verses 19 to 30. And uh, just uh, moving on from this. You note carefully the the, the contrast. And it it stands out to me here if you you just look. Paul says in verse uh, 19, for instance, look at this. He says, um, for I know, It's it's a word of confidence. Look at that. I know that through your prayers... And the help given by the Spirit of Jesus, the prayers of God's people, and God's sovereign will, I know I'm going to get through this. I know. But then, as is so typical of life, in verse 22, for if I am to go on on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I say? What shall I choose? There is the complete opposite now. I do not know. I don't know. There are many things we don't know. Can we concentrate on the things that we do? And that's the whole point of the future. That's the whole point of the future as we are thinking together this morning. As Christians, there are many things 
I say to you, not so much, if you like, now in a, in a teaching sense, in a theological sense, if you like, but almost entirely in a pastoral sense, it's this. There are experiences that you will have in your life that you will never understand this side of heaven. So, don't keep on going on about them. They've happened to you. You need to work that through and trust in God who is good and continues to be good, even if it's difficult. And that's the atmosphere of this chapter. So let's be careful. There are things I know. There are things I don't know. And oh, I could go through life. An emotional, spiritual, psychological cripple saying, well, if only, if only. What can we say? Just two things. First of all, we need to be people who are glorying in certainties. There are certainties. You have it there in these verses 19 to 20, and for the sake of time you can read those. Paul is certain of deliverance. This is what I know. I, the literal meaning of the word is salvation. And it's a challenge to us, isn't there, that... Um, and it's a question for the home groups. Why do we need both? Isn't it enough to pray? What about the spirit of Jesus? And he says, because of both at work. Human prayer, divine power, divine providence. That was the point, isn't it, of uh, the, the miracle of San Jose. Very humbling. I'm sure that there were some people who would only give thanks for the miracle of engineers such precision. But what about God's power, God's sovereign will? I can't help but think, what would it be like in Britain if that happened? Are we such a country that has put God on the fringe that we think God is only a spectator in our lives? It says a lot about our culture, doesn't it? Glorying in certainties in the future. Prayer is a mystery. I grant you that. And it's not so much to be explained, but to be experienced. And no is an answer as well as yes. The trouble is we don't like a no answer. And secondly and lastly, if there are glorious certainties, we often grapple with uncertainties. And we've all, we, we have this in, in the, the, le, the last part, verses 21 right through to 30. And what do you make of this, uh, this statement of, of Paul? It's so humbling, it's so challenging. It, you almost tremble when you read it. For me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. How, how would you finish the sentence? For me to live. What? What would it be? Not, not just a church now. In the privacy of your own mind and heart. The, the way that you live. How often we say we value what we do and we do what we value. Fill in, fill in the sentence. For me to live is money. But to die is to leave it behind. And so much trouble in families. Not always, but often. For me to live is fame, and to die, and to be forgotten. For me to live is power, and to die is to lose it all. For me to live is possessions, 
And to die is to take none of it with me. How do you, how do you finish a sentence? It says a lot about us, doesn't it? You, I'll, I'll finish it for me and you finish it for you because I can't do that. The glorying and uncertainties. Two things that are held in tension. To live is Christ, to die is gain. Let me ask you one uh, question as we round this off now. Have you ever been homesick for heaven? In a way, it's just... just it's a bit of a difficult question to ask because in a way you, you, you're usually homesick for somewhere you've been to or you belong to. But we do belong there. And been there. Sometimes we have a little foretaste. I'm twixt between. I'm in the horns of a dilemma. Here I am. So we should be careful today. Death for believers. Is it that Prayers have been unanswered? Really? Really? Would you think again? No. Life is precious. Jesus wept at the grave of his friend. Nevertheless, are we so caught up with the spirit of this age, like the neurotic society that's protesting because perhaps we've got to work two more years and can't have our pension and can't do all this for us and the cutbacks. And you think, you know, as what, what an opportunity for us as Christian people to demonstrate an alternative and to live it out. Of course we need these things. We do. I do. And yet we can lose our perspective on this, can't we? I think that we can experience joy in the context of all this. We can. Conflicts and dilemmas. The loss of a loved one. The loss of our health. The loss of kudos that we are no longer working. Because people only value you for what you do, not for, what, for who you are. And in the face of opposition... And we've had a little taste of it. It's, it's but a flea bite, really. We shouldn't complain too much about the AVDC and so on. God's got good things for us. And in the face of opposition, Christians should not be intimidated. We should not be. I hope we're not. So in verse 27, here is this, whatever happens... Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. So people are saying unkind things about Longcrend and Baptist Church. And we have no recourse to defend ourselves. What are you to do? Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. That's what we should do. We should go on doing what we've always done. And Christians should not be overcome by opposition either. And you see in verse, verse 29, just look at this as we conclude. For it has been, and this is part of becoming a Christian. Probably nobody told you that. When you made a commitment. Maybe you haven't. If you are, look, this is part of it. It's not coming in through the back door. Verse 29. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him. It's a part of being a Christian. It's 
not just people in Africa or people in Eastern Europe. We should not be overcome by opposition. But, there's a sentence I have here, it is this. Opposition authenticates faith. It does. I mean, a church that you are indifferent to doesn't matter, does it? But a church that you are annoyed about, a church that is bucking the trends, a church that is growing and, and is inconvenient, how terrible people should park outside. What a terrible thing to do. You want to say to some people, don't you? Would you get a life? Well, you know, it really is absurd. But what we want to do now is to, say, to put this into the context of that. Opposition authenticates Christian faith. God is at work. And we rejoice. And Paul says here, the last verse, since you were going through the same struggle you saw as I had, and now hear that I still have. And so do we, because we're part of the same church. So much then, uh, past and future. But what about the present? Here we are. We're here this morning. What, do you, what, what can we say about this? Maybe we're oftentimes regretting the past. Perhaps we almost escape into the past. Perhaps we like to lick our wounds and feel sorry for ourselves. Or maybe we're fearing the future. It doesn't look good. But... Jesus would come to us and say, My name is I am. Not I was or I will be. He is the great I am every day, all the time. So listen to this. When you live in the past with its mistakes and vain regrets, it's hard. I'm not there. I'm not there. I am not I was. That is not my name. And when you live in the future with its problems and fears looming ahead, it's hard. Don't you know it? I'm not there, Jesus says. My name is not I will be. But when you live today, living out today, it is not so hard. I am here. My name, my name is I am. I am. And you know, that really is our confidence, our anchor, our hope in all the flux and change. So we can know joy even in the context of fear, hope, the face of despair.